our righteousness, the prophet said, is like a filthy rag. Our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Not your bad deeds, not your wicked deeds, but the best deeds you have ever done in God's sight are like filthy rags because they're tainted and polluted with sin. No, righteousness is the gift of God. It's imputed and it's credited to you. But if you have been credited with righteousness, that means you're born again. You see, the Spirit of God can't come live inside of you until God declares you righteous. And he can't declare you righteous until you receive Jesus as Lord. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three in the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The Judgment of the Nations. In the last two days, we have looked at the time and subjects of his judgment. And today, we will see the results of his judgment. Matthew chapter 25 verse 41 says, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he concludes his sermon. So he turns to these sheep on his right, and he says they are blessed of his father. And again, these sheep are these believing Gentiles who have embraced Jesus as Lord. You might want to write out in the margin two verses, Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Let me read that. I think it sheds some light on verse 34. There Daniel writes, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the Ancient of Days, to the Father, and they brought him near before him. And again, we've already noted the Son of Man, it's a term used of the Messiah, and he comes to the Father, and the Father's going to give him a kingdom. Look at verse 14. Then to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, Languages should serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So here in verse 34, the king is the son of man, um, and again, that's an important verse of scripture, and he is fulfilling here in verse 34 what Daniel wrote 550 years before Christ. The son of man's gonna come, He's going to have a kingdom. Matthew is describing when that kingdom is given to the Son. The the Bible is amazing. It's written over 1,500 years on three different continents in three different languages by some 40 different men, most of whom never met each other. But there's one flow of thought from Genesis to Revelation because behind each and every human author, there's one divine author, God the Holy Spirit. And so notice here, of these saved who are blessed of my Father, they are invited, look at the text, to inherit the kingdom prepared for you when? From the foundation of the world. Does that sound familiar? From the foundation of the world. The Calvinists would say, you see, it's all fixed. God made this decision from the foundation of the world, and you have no say in it. Let's think our way through that, because the text says, from the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4 echoes this truth. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be, <clears throat> excuse me, holy and blameless before him. So as you read the New Testament, it is very clear that even before the foundation of the world, as Matthew's gospel is affirming here, God knew who the blessed ones were. 
That's why the Apostle John will write this in Revelation 13 and verse 8. He'll write about all who dwell on the earth, or earth dwellers, unbelievers, will worship him, the Antichrist, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that has been slain. Now look, if your name is not found in the Lamb's book of life, you won't go to heaven. And God tells us that he wrote the names in the Lamb's book of life when? Before the foundation of the world. In Acts 1, the scripture says, you, Lord, know the hearts of all men. I think that what we have descriptive in Ephesians and many other passages is God's foreknowledge, God's beforehand knowledge. And God knew from the foundation of the world God wouldn't be God if God didn't know who would be saved and who would not be saved. Remember in the same way, on Paul's first missionary journey, he comes to a place called Pisidian Antioch. And there in Pisidian Antioch, we're told in Acts 13, and when the Gentiles heard this, the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Oh, it's all rigged. <laughs> no choice. That's what my dear Calvinist friends would say. Now, Non-Calvinists would tend to soften this word appointed, but you can't soften it. The Greek word literally means to ordain or to assign into a particular classification, to inscribe or to enroll. We just read about those who were enrolled in the Lamb's Book of Life. So first of all, let me just say, without you getting too ruffled, <laughs> the doctrine of election is not a Calvinistic doc doctrine. The doctrine of election is a biblical doctrine. And if you don't believe in the doctrine of election, you don't believe in the Bible. Every Bible-believing Christian believes in the doctrine of election. We just read, he chose us. It's the Greek word that we get our word elect. He elected us before the foundation of the world. Every Bible-believing Christian believes in the doctrine of election. The question is, don't shut me out, not if God elects, but how he elects. And therein lies the distinction. How does God elect? Now, John Calvin taught what's called unconditional election. That before the foundation of the world, God chose out of the mass of humanity some to be saved. And some Calvinists teach double predestination, that God created some for salvation and others for damnation. And they would love to use Acts 13, 48, as many as is appointed to eternal life believed. But let's think our way through this. Now, let me say first, because I don't want you to think that I'm on an Arminian, if you know what that term means. Salvation in the initiative didn't begin with you. It began with God Almighty. The scripture says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I've had hundreds of caskets down here over the years. I don't stand over a casket and say, hey man, your, your, your tie, it's a little bit out of, can you straighten it out? It's dead. Dead men can't respond. People who are dead and their trespasses and sins cannot respond. So it's God who initiates. Well, on what basis does God initiate? Well, let's think about this word foreknowledge. In uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, we're told that we are chosen how? According to the foreknowledge of God. That's what Paul said in Romans 8. Those whom he foreknew he chose. We're chosen here according to the foreknowledge 
of God. So how do we find the, define the word foreknowledge? Well, it's two Greek words bled together. The word gnosis, we get our word gnosic or knowledge from it. And the word pra, we get our word pre. It means before knowledge. God in his before knowledge knew who would respond to his initiative, to his stirring, and who as an act of their own free will chose to call upon Jesus in faith. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter is speaking about these false teachers who will come into the church and try to bring about turmoil, and, and he says that they distort the Scripture to their own destruction. And then he says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, same word, prognosco, just in verbal form, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unscrupulous people and lose your own firm commitment. He's saying because you have prior knowledge that this is what's going to happen, evil men are going to come in and try to knock you off kilter. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. I'm giving you this pre-knowledge. Paul uses the same verb in Acts 26 when he's describing his Jewish brethren who knew all about him. And he said, since they have known about me, there it is, prognosco, since they have known about me, they had this prior knowledge for a long time. If they're willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the restrictive sect of our religion, then, then, then let them testify. It just means prior knowledge. God in eternity past could write the name of every single person who would believe. You know, we used to have a, new, a song, there's a new name written down in glory. No, there's not. It's written down in glory before the foundation of the world. Because God in eternity past saw how men dead in their trespasses and sins would respond to the Spirit of God stirring them. Now, that's not the way the Calvinist sees it. R.C. Sproul is a Calvinist. He's a good brother. He's in heaven now. I'm grateful for many of the things he taught, but he was just really discombobulated on a number of things. He said, and I quote, when God foreknows a person, he sets his love upon him. Our Lord's choice of men and women for salvation is based on his decision to set his love upon them, not his knowledge of what they will do. See the difference? But he is reinterpreting the use of prognosco, whether it uses a noun or as a verb. And so he's not speaking of the prognosis of God. And that word prognosis, prior knowledge, comes right into English today and it hasn't, meaning hasn't changed. He is speaking here of the forelove of God. John Calvin, now understand Calvin. He's like the one who waves this flag and he waves it because he was the disciple of Augustine. And like Augustine, who in many ways displayed a lot of anti-Semitism, so did John Calvin. And so when John Calvin comes to Romans 9, 10, and 11, because he believes God is done with the Jewish people, he comes out of Catholicism. The Roman Catholic Church said, we are now the chosen people, not the Jewish people. We are the new Israel of God. And Calvin just put a different spin on it and said, no, the body of Christ is the new Israel. Well, God is certainly working through the church, but he has not usurped the role the Jews will play. And so John Calvin said this about the Jews. He said, quote, the Jews are a rotten and unbending people whose obstinance deserves that they be oppressed without measure or end and that they die in their misery without pit the pity of anyone. 
I wouldn't want to meet the Lord having said that about the Jewish people. So when he comes to Romans 9, 10, and 11, and this is not intended to be a full-blown sermon on the doctrine of election. I preached like 10 messages in 9, 10, and 11, if you really want to study it. Romans 9, for Calvin, was not God choosing a nation out of all the nations of the world, but choosing you to go to heaven and you to go to hell. No, Romans 9 is with Israel's election. Romans 10, their current rejection, their current unbelief. Romans 11, their future restoration. So Paul asks in Romans 11 in verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Talking about the Jewish people. Meganoida, may it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Then he plainly states in verse 2 of the same chapter, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Romans 11:2 is simply referring to God's prior knowledge of Israel that he knew that when the Messiah came, they would in their self-righteousness, just like Gentiles today who think they're good enough to get into heaven, they turn their back on Jesus. But in their faithful, faithlessness, God was faithful to them. You see, the end of Romans 8, if you remember, is nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the natural question would be, wait a minute, God, over and over and over again, you said in the Old Testament, you love the nation of Israel with an everlasting love. Now they've rejected you. Do you still love them with an everlasting love? That's 9, 10, and 11. He illustrates the everlasting love. Yes, I selected them. Yes, they're in unbelief, but I haven't forsaken them because I'm going to restore them. That's chapter 11. Now, back here in our text, Matthew 25, verse 34. When it speaks about those who will inherit the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world, God could see those who would respond to the wooing work of the Spirit. Now, in case you're interested, in case you know the terms, people say, are you a Calvinist or are you Arminian? I'm neither. I'm a Calvinian. <laughs> there's, there's degrees of truth. Who do I believe the elect are? The elect of the whosoever wills, the non-elect of the whosoever wants. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so those sheep who have believed in our omniscient God knew it in eternity past, invites them into the kingdom prepared. Now, let's go to the third point. Beyond the time of the second, the time of this judgment, which is the second coming, beyond the subject, which are Gentiles saved the sheep and lost the goats, that brings us now to the basis of the judgment. I'm almost done. Stay with me. Don't fall asleep. The basis of the judgment, verses 35 and following. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in naked. You clothed me. I was sick. You visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. I remember there are two groups of people here. The first group are the nations who are subdivided into sheep and goats, saved and lost. And the sheep are saved not by the things they do. They prove their faith by the things they do. Look at verse 37. He said, then the righteous will answer. How do you get righteous in God's sight? By the things you do, nothing could be further from the truth. Our righteousness, the prophet said, is like a filthy rag. Our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Not your bad deeds, not your wicked deeds, but the best deeds you have ever done in God's sight are like filthy rags because they're tainted and polluted with sin. 
No, righteousness is the gift of God. It's imputed and it's credited to you. But if you have been credited with righteousness, that means you're born again. You see, the Spirit of God can't come live inside of you until God declares you righteous. And he can't declare you righteous until you receive Jesus as Lord. That's a major point running all the way through Matthew, that you're not saved by works, you're saved by grace. But when you're born again, your life changes. Then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked or clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Naturally, there is a little bit confusion here because they have never seen Jesus with his physical eyes any more than any of us have. When did we see you in this state? And the king, verse 40, will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. In other words, he's saying to these Gentiles, you can be divided into sheep or goats on the way you treated my brethren, the Jewish people. Now, remember, in Scripture, God often identifies a believer by the way he treats his people. Even in the church age, John can write, we know we've passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brethren. There are people who will come here and they think, oh, you know, okay, I came to church. Maybe I'll come back in five years. (laughs) They don't love the brethren. If you're born again, just like you have a love for your physical family, assuming it's healthy, if you're born again, you'll have a love for the born ones, the children of God. You'll have an affinity for the people of God. God identifies with his people. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says on the Damascus road. What do you mean? Well, whatever you did to these people, my church... You're doing to me. And that's the identification here. The way you treated Israel, believing Israel, is what you were doing to me. And again, if you read the prophet Zechariah, during the time of the tribulation, a lot of the Jewish people will die. In fact, two-thirds will. And those who make it, what's the attitude of all the nations of the world? You know, there's a spirit of anti-Semitism that is growing like I've never seen in my life. It's growing. It's deepening. It's broadening. People are boldly saying things about the Jewish people that they have, haven't said since Hitler's day. There's coming a time after the church is removed when the Bible teaches all the nations of the world are going to go against Israel. Listen to Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 3. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, and all who lift it will be severely injured, injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Jesus is just simply saying, under these conditions, when all the nations of the world are going to oppose Israel, that's the battle of Armageddon. All the nations will go against her. Those believing Gentiles who have the real thing, they will stand for Israel no matter what. Now, quickly, the results of this judgment. The results of this judgment. There's no room for anti-Semites in the coming kingdom. What are the results? Well, notice the contrast with the goats, the unbelieving Gentiles. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. By the way, if you die and go to hell, you'll be trespassing. Because God didn't create hell for man. 
He created hell for the devil and his angels. And it's eternal. It doesn't burn out. You don't just die and go there for a week. It's forever and ever and ever. Ionion is used to describe eternal life, eternal death, and the eternal God. And so how will they show that there weren't real believers? Verse 42, I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. Thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't invite me in. Naked, you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, you didn't invite me, visit me. I'll say, well, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? He will answer truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the least of these, my Jewish brethren, you did not do it to me. Again, he's not dealing with the root of faith, but the fruit of faith. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. By the way, there's no purgatory. It's heaven or hell. There's no in-between. How are we going to apply this? Let me ask three questions that I want each of us to ask of ourselves. Number one, do my works show that I am one of Christ's sheep? Do my works show that I am one of his sheep? Titus 1.15 says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. James will write in James 3.17, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. That is, faith by itself is nothing but a mere profession because the faith that does not produce a changed life, James will say, is a dead life. It's a dead faith. Jesus will put it this way, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. If you're one of his sheep, you have a propensity to want to follow Jesus. They follow me, and I give. We don't earn it. I give eternal life to them. They shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. You don't earn eternal life. It's gifted to you. Again, you're saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never, ever alone. So do you have works that show you're one of his sheep? Secondly, ask this question. Am I involved in gathering Christ's sheep into the fold? Am I involved in gathering Christ's sheep into the fold? You know, sometimes I will say tongue and cheek, you know, of some, well, you know, I'll, I'll say, you know, I'm, I'm not one as a pastor to steal sheep. If someone's in a good, healthy church, you should stay there. If it's a good, healthy church, support your pastor. Stay there. But often I'll say, but, you know, if they're in a crummy church, I, I, I want to get the goats. <laughs> but you know that's tongue and cheek because in the truest sense, before the foundation of the world, the Lord knew who his sheep was, were. Jesus said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Of course, there he's speaking to the Gentiles that there's going to be other believers, but they're still called sheep. And so as God's people, we're on a rescue mission. We should be trying to gather those people whom God knew in advance without changing their free will who would respond, and we should go after them. Let me just ask a question this morning. Think with me for just a moment. Of the people you love most, more than anyone else, what's your deepest, earnest desire for the people you love the most? What's your greatest desire for them? For example, parents, what's your greatest desire for your children? Is it a... Education. I want them to have a sterling education. 
Well, you're just going to make them clever devils to go to hell if you neglect the spiritual side. Well, I, I, I want them to be involved in the culture, you know, music, the arts, or maybe even develop their athletic skills and abilities. But you neglect the spiritual? Well, I, you know, I want them to have what I didn't have. I hear this all the time, you know. I didn't have much growing up. I want my kids to have what I didn't have. I want to bless them beyond measure materially. What good will that do when they're raised up in the judgment and they meet a God they've never met? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and in the end he forfeits his soul? You want your children and the people around you because we are not to be concerned just of our loved ones, but we've been committed with the Great Commission to go into all the world to every creature and preach the gospel. We're to share the good news of forgiveness. Is your name this morning in the Lamb's Book of Life? It can be if you'll believe. I mean, who wouldn't want to go to a place where there's no crime? There's no murders, there's no mugging, there's no death, there's no goodbye. It's a place of perfect and infinite joy where the Lord is. Who wouldn't want to go there? You see, if we don't go there, it's because we're, we don't know the gospel, and I'm sharing it with you this morning. Or we're insubordinate. We are choosing, I don't want to yield to Jesus. Why? Because we love sin more than we love the Lord. Jesus is the only one who can get your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's the way for those of you who are lost this morning. He's the truth for those of you who have been deceived. He's the life for those of you who are looking for meaning and purpose. The thief comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal. He said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. But you must call upon him. You must receive him as Lord and Savior. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Today, you can be saved today, the scripture teaches, because it's not earned, it's gifted, but you have to humbly receive the gift. Today is the day of salvation. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed this morning, no one leaving, unless it's an emergency. You're here and you're not sure of your salvation. You can be sure. Jesus didn't die for some of your sin or most of it. He died for every sin. And he proved his sinlessness and his ability to make that payment when God raised him from the dead. But you must humble yourself and admit that your sin is heinous, that it needs forgiveness and changing. You must call upon him, whoever, that means you, means me, anybody, whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Would you reach out in your heart today and say, Lord Jesus, by your death and resurrection, save even me. Our Father, you are righteous. And while this world is mocking you and making fun of you and ignoring you, your son is coming back and there will be a great separation of believers from unbelievers. But thank you for your passionate heart that you wish for none to perish but for all to come to repentance, that you desire all men to be saved. And thank you that you would privilege us to be the voice box of Jesus, to tell men and women, boys and girls, how they can be saved and forgiven. 
Help us in this brand new, fresh week to be faithful with the message. We ask it in your holy name. Amen. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 024. Remember that you can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.